This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm crazy grateful for all of you who subscribe, share, and leave reviews. If this is your first time, welcome to the Elevate community. Like our home church, Living Word, I and the Elevate leaders work as hard as we can to build an atmosphere of love to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. It would mean the world to us if you helped us get the word out by sharing this episode on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate, visit us at iloveelevate.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do, which brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. We are continuing James tonight. This is the second to last week of James. I'm going to miss it. It's been butt-kicking, but I'm going to miss it when it's over. At the beginning of April, we're going to begin our Little Black Book series. That's going to be fantastic. It is the Elevate series on love, dating, sex, marriage, all that fun stuff. And it's one of my very favorites to go through. It's been almost two years since we did it. And so it's time. Let's knuckle into that and see what the Word of God has to say. I'm excited about the Little Black Book series. If you are like digging tonight, if there's something that is said that you're like, oh man, what did he say again? I didn't write fast enough. You can get online at iloveelevate.com. You can download the very extensive and overly detailed notes that are posted there uh, on the podcast page. Elevate, are you ready to dive into James? James is going to mess with us tonight. Oh yeah. James is the younger half-brother of Jesus Christ. He grew up in the same household with him. He heard Jesus' teaching all of his life, and yet he still did not become a believer until Jesus died, rose again, and ascended. And James sold out completely. Uh, His martyrdom is one of the most um, interesting and brutal of any of the disciples because he believed so much in who Jesus was. James, whenever Paul and Barnabas and Peter were out planting churches around the Mediterranean, James stayed in Jerusalem and founded basically the home church. He took over it, and they would come and go supported by the Jerusalem church. A major theme for James is he is reaching out to those who are poor. Because during his time over the Jerusalem church, not only was there heavy persecution for the Christian church, but there was also a famine that left many, many, many of his people just destitute. And so he is encouraging them so much throughout the book of James to hang in there, to believe that God's going to take care of them, to not give up. Three main themes that you're going to find throughout the book of James are keep your mouth in check, keep your hands busy with serving, and keep yourself holy before God. And you're going to see it over and over again. The very first chapter, James just starts getting all up in our business. He starts telling us that our suffering, the things that we despise and we try to stiff arm as much as we can to stay around and avoid that suffering is actually of God. And God uses it to grow and discipline and strengthen his believers. In James 2, he criticized our prejudice. He put our prejudice right up front and said, you know what? This isn't just about race. Every time that you esteem one person and treat them better than somebody else, you are falling into a sin of prejudice. And then he criticized our speech and he messed with our mouth. He said, what comes out of our mouth is just pouring out fire and poison. Our mouth is actually the steering wheel for our life, and yet it's one of the most dangerous aspects of our life. And then last week, he criticized our divisiveness, how we'll argue and fight over petty, ridiculous things, and he called us to repentance. Tonight, James is messing with one of our most protected idols, the precious. James is going to criticize how we deal 
with money. Oh, yeah. Let's go, James. There's a great story out of the book, Love Does. It's one of my favorite books, so I refer to it a lot. And whenever our seniors graduate, I always put this book into their hands. Uh, The author, his name was Bob, Bob Goff. And his son's name is Richard. He has a couple sons, a couple daughters, something like that. And as a young man, a, a student, Richard went out and he played the game Bigger and Better. Have you heard the, of this game before? You might have heard me talk about it before. I love this game. Richard would take a dime, him and a couple of friends, and they'd knock on a door. And when someone comes to the door, he would say, I've got a dime in my hand. Would you trade me for something bigger and better? They would take the dime and they would come back and replace it with something bigger and better. And you go house to house and you see how big and how cool you can get throughout the day. So Richard goes to the first door with his dime and he walks away from the house with a certain mattress. That's bigger. So he's down the street to the next house and he knocks on the door again. In that house, he leaves with a ping pong table. That's cool. The third house gave him a moose head, which is the coolest thing ever that you can receive at the door and needs to be brought to Viking night and shot at with big arrows. It's amazing how we will cling on to stuff in our life. So often we will stand at the door of Jesus and he'll say, I've got bigger and better for you. Will you give me what's already in your hand? And we'll go, I don't know. Yeah. Mm. I worked really hard for this. It took me a long time. I like, this is something I always wanted. And Jesus is going, will you surrender it to me because I have bigger and better for you. The precious. And if we have this fear, and we wouldn't say it out loud, we have this fear that if we will surrender what we have to Jesus, that we're going to be left empty-handed by him. Or maybe he'll give us something back that's just not as good as what we had to give up. And although we may never put it into words, what we're actually saying is, God, what I have for my life is better than what you have for my life. Let's begin. James, instead of jumping into five, we're going to back up into chapter four a little bit because it's going to give us context. Let's begin chapter four, verse 13. James has changed gears completely from the divisiveness that he was talking about and calling to repentance. And he is beginning with this. Come now, you who say, tomorrow or today, we will go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. James is turning the spotlight. For for James 1 and 2, he has the spotlight on those who are poor and needy in the church. And he's comforting them and encouraging them. And now he's swinging the spotlight over to those who are merchants, those who are pursuing wealth, who are making money with their lives. These people that have, through wisdom, have used business savvy to pursue goals. And there's nothing wrong with that. But he's putting the spotlight on them because he has some pretty challenging things to say. And what he's saying is, let's suppose there's a scenario where you come up with the idea that if you travel to another town and you set up shop there for a while, you can make great profits. But isn't it crazy? That you're trying to make this year prediction when you don't even know if you're going to live through now. You don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. And you're trying to set up these long, big plans. I love this old Yiddish adage, and it goes like this. Man tracht und Gott lacht. That is not Klingon. You want to say it with me? Man tracht und 
Gott lacht. It means man plans, God laughs. How empty are the plans of man? We're so sure that we have all these days ahead of us and we have no idea what just the rest of today will hold. How can we make plans for the next 365? We don't know what's tomorrow. Verse 15, James is talking to them and he says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James recommends a perspective change. Who is the creator? Who is sovereign? Whose will turns the galaxies? Who put time into place? Who knows the future because he put it into place? Who else but God? And so isn't it boasting? Isn't it arrogant for us to like run out in the head and say, I've got my life all planned out and never even go, if the Lord wills it, Lord, what do you have for my life? Those of us who are followers of Christ, we've given our lives to Jesus and our decisions begin with Jesus. What do you want for my life? What do you want me to do in this situation? How arrogant is it for us to just think we can make it all these plans and have it all figured out? Proverbs 16, 9, one of my very favorite verses. A man's heart plans his way, but Yahweh, the Lord, directs his steps. Even when we are dead set in our own plan, God's will will lean us right back to what he has for us. The end of the chapter says this, verse 33 of, of Proverbs 16. The lot, think of like dice, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is of the Lord. Even the smallest things like tossing dice, God is already sovereign over that. He plans it. These merchants and we should know that business and every other decision that we make is underneath, should be underneath the leadership of God. How arrogant is it for us to just try to run our own lives when we have come before the creator of all whose will is sovereign over all and said that our life belongs to him. Let's keep going. Verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Not about you, but I was like, whoa, what's the connection to the verse before? We're just talking about how we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but God does. And then he's like, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, it's like, whoa, this is, first of all, that's a heavy saying already. But what's that? how does that connect? What he's saying is that if we don't, if, If the one thing that we absolutely know for sure is that we have no idea what tomorrow holds, then every moment is precious. Every moment should be grasped onto to surrender it to the will of the Lord. Every opportunity should be taken. Here's James for you. Every opportunity to love somebody else should be grabbed onto because we don't know what tomorrow holds. And so James ups the ante and says, don't just avoid sin. Yes, it's sin to choose to do what is wrong, but you know what else is sin, according to James? To know what is right and to not do it. As in, example, a friend of mine was driving to work and he saw a lady on the side of the road trying to change her tire poorly. And he had a decision to make. Do I show up late for work or do I pull over? And honestly, he passed her. And the Lord messed with his head. And he had to do a U-turn at the next exit and come back. And he chose to help. Why? Because he saw the right thing to do. And it would have, for him, been sin for him to pass up the opportunity to love somebody. Because that's the royal law, according to James. To love 
our neighbor as ourself, according to Jesus. Here's a great example that I never caught before. Adam and Eve. I know every preacher goes back to it. I don't know why every third sermon has to go back to Adam and Eve, but there's a lot of profound stuff happening. I used to think that there was a delay between Eve's sin and then maybe a couple minutes later, Adam's sin. Mm -hmm, She did it first. Eve. But according to James, let's check this out. Let's go to Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's Eve, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. As in, Adam's sin was that he did not do what was right that he allowed his wife that he was supposed to protect, that he allowed this stupid talking snake to get in to her head as she is sinning as the man who should have been protecting, who should have been stopping this whole scenario. His sin initially was that he stood by, did not do what was right. There was no delay between one and two. Every time that we forsake the opportunity to love our neighbors, every time we walk the other way because I'm just too busy, We are falling into sin just as much as if we pursue sin itself. Jesus Jesus followers, us Christians, we Christians, excuse my grammar, we are called to not live a life of apathy, of complacency. We're called to a life in motion, of action, to be constantly aware of what's going on because God's going to use us today. When we wake up out of our beds, it shouldn't be like, okay, I've got to go to school and I've got to do these things. It should be, I wonder who at school God's going to send me to today. I wonder at what point Along the way, I'm going to be used by his Holy Spirit. Lord, open my eyes. Please don't let me pass somebody by that you have, have me supposed to go to and love. The sum of these verses is that we're not guaranteed tomorrow, so let's stay in motion today. Why do we feel like we have to wait on God's permission to do good? What's the most important law, Jesus? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Permission granted. Go love somebody. Go do good. Go be Jesus. James is talking to these business owners, those who have spent their lives working to, to acclimate wealth. And it, feels, it seems like James didn't think he was getting across because he like cranks up the volume here. Chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Oh, gosh, James, calm down. What is going on? James spent chapter 1 and 2 comforting the poor, but now he is going after these wealthy people that he's talking to. He's affluent. He's powerful. He's pulled the gloves off. He's swinging hard, and he plans to make a dent in their egos. Verse 2, your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion, get this, will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Whoa, James. He's looking down the road at what their wealth is going to bring them. And it's not good. And he's trying to warn them. And he's intentionally echoing Jesus. Remember? He walked with Jesus. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19. See if this sounds familiar. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures Oh, on earth, excuse me. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For your treasure is 
there your heart will be also. James is quoting Jesus. He's echoing back. And James, has, he's zeroed in on these guys that love their wealth, and he is putting them under pressure. He's challenging their treasure. None of the wealth, none of the comfort, none of the luxuries are going to pay off. In fact, he says that all of those things that they've accumulated for themselves, when they stand before God, those things will cry out in testimony of their selfishness. Whenever God is going, how did you love people? This stuff over here is going to testify and say, they just loved me. They chose us over people. Verse 3, let's continue. James says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. But it's been earthly treasure. Their focus has been completely wrong. Instead of storing up treasure in the only thing that lasts in the kingdom of heaven, their treasure had been stored up in stuff, greedily hoarding it for themselves. And James has written these verses with a story in mind, a story that Jesus told. It's Luke 12, verse 16. Then Jesus told them a parable saying, and this parable has always confused me until I've read it in this context. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. I'm going to go bigger. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods. I love that. I'm going to say to my soul, soul, you got what you need. I have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul, the one you're talking to, your soul is required of you. And the things that you prepared, <laughs> whose will they be? So is the one who lays up for himself treasure that is not rich toward God. All of a sudden, this is making sense. Is this making sense to you guys? Like, what? what was wrong? I think it was... I think it was clever for him to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. Like, doesn't that make sense? He's storing it up. He's saving it up. But God calls him a fool. Is he a fool because he made wise decisions? No. He's a fool because his security was in stuff. He was so bent on making himself comfortable that he missed the real treasure. Two things about these wealthy people that James is addressing. First is their selfish ambition. And the second one, and here's the clincher that James is going to go after, is how they obtained their wealth. Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back, you hoarded by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. They have acquired this luxurious living, this self-indulgence through hoarding, not paying or underpaying the people that work for them. Condemning is a judicial term, is in lawsuits, by suing people and even murdering. And the people that they're going after to try to make money off of aren't even resisting them. They're just innocent. And they're descending on them like vultures. That would be really easy. I don't know about you guys, but I like throwing myself in this category. It would be really easy for us to omit ourselves from James's teaching tonight. To be like, you know what? I don't have any money. My parents aren't rich. I don't have any employees that I'm supposed to pay. I've never sued anybody. James, this is really good for somebody else. But I don't think wealth itself is what's wrong. 
First Timothy 6 says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Pangs is like pains and, and disasters and trials. They do it to themselves. Wealth is not the problem. Priorities are the problem. Their focus is on their comforts and their advancements. The power that money brings. They're violating the royal law by choosing their stuff over people, where they are willing to step on people to gain their desires. Wealth is not the problem. Our desires, our priorities are the problem. Money has become their idol. And James is confronting all of us. And you know what? The people that worship money, the most are many times people that don't have much of it. Consider it. They're the ones that crave and fight and scratch and are willing to do whatever it takes to gain. How many times have you heard about somebody being killed on the street for their shoes? It's people that don't have much that will often idolize money. So let's not count ourselves out. We are all in this boat together that James is going after. It's a lot of fun to back up for a second. It's a lot of fun to say, if you won the lottery and you had ample money to spend on whatever you want, what would you spend it on? And we might be able to to detect, detect some priorities in there about you. But the real question is, what if you don't win the lottery? Then how will you treat your money? Then your priorities are shown. Are you still willing to be gracious? Are you still willing to go above and beyond to help somebody, even when you don't have much? That's where our kingdom priorities stand out. It's easy to say, if I had $100 million, I would be glad to give half of it away. Yeah, because you're pretty set that you can live on the other half. It's when you don't have much, then are you willing to be gracious? I think Paul knew that this was coming up because he goes back to quoting Jesus. Matthew 6, 31. Don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles, like the non-believers, they seek after all this stuff. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all too. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, they'll be added to you. Reprioritize. God first. Everything else second. And God is saying, if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to put me first, if you're willing to follow my royal law, serve God, serve people, love God, love people, then I'm going to take care of you. This is a call to faith. I love the story of the rich, the rich guy that comes. He's like this young man, and he's got all this wealth, and he comes to Jesus, and he's like, Jesus, let's just read it. Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said, well, which commandments? And Jesus said, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. I love how he slips that in there. And the young man said, all of these I've kept, so what do I still lack? It's like he knows that there's something missing. He's done all the rules his whole life, and he keeps coming after Jesus, like, Jesus, what am I missing? I've, I've done that. What's left? I need something else. There, there's something in me that's aching, saying that, that I haven't arrived yet. And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, 
Sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. There's that treasure in heaven thing. And then come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. I never caught it before until actually right now. And Jesus does slip that love your neighbor as yourself thing in there. And he's like, I've already been doing that. And Jesus is like, great, go give to the poor. And he can't do it. He hasn't been doing it. I think that's so interesting. Did Jesus really, Dom, did Jesus really believe that selling and giving away everything was worth it? Did Jesus really mean it? Did he really intend for this guy to go sell and give away everything and follow him? It's crazy. Is Jesus' command for all of us to go sell and give away everything? No. Is it possible he might ask? Yes. When was the last time you had the guts to ask him? Here's the focus shift that Jesus is asking of his followers. Here's the focus shift that James is asking of us. He's not asking. It's okay. Take a breath. James is not asking us to give up everything for Jesus. Because you gave your life to him. You are bought with a high price, made a new creation. You are adopted son and daughter of Christ. News, everything you already have already belongs to Jesus. Everything that you are. All your stuff, everything in your bedroom, if you have a bank account, everything in your account, if you've given your life to Jesus, everything that you have already is his. You've already been purchased at a high price, the price of his son. When we can have that focus shift, all of a sudden, it's not so difficult. We don't cling so hard to things. When we already know that it belongs to him, he's just asked us to be a caretaker of it. I love what Pastor Ben said where he said, I don't even remember what it was, but I'll have to make it up again. But I remember that I was inspired by him. And he was saying, like, what if I had this nice car and I said, I'm going out of town. I need you to take care of it. You would probably drive it really, really. You'd be careful, right? Hopefully, because you like me. God has entrusted us with the things that we have. But at any point, I might come home and say, I want my car back. You see the, 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 the perspective difference? It's so beautiful. Jesus is calling his followers, he's calling us to be loose-fisted with the stuff in our lives. He's calling us to walk around with open hands because everything we have is his. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Yikes. That's what happens when we cling on, just like that farmer. When God first called Abraham, Abraham, leave your country, leave everyone you know, come and follow me. Genesis 12, 2. And God makes him this promise. I'll make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Everything that we have from God is only meant to be a blessing. He will bless our socks off so that we can be a blessing. There was a gentleman in my last church in Destin. I love this guy. His name was David Simpson. And if you've ever driven through Destin, you've seen him because he's up on a whole bunch of billboards as a lawyer or something. And every year he would invite our student ministry to come over to his very nice house and just wreck it, just have a blast. And we would just party all over his house. He would lend us his boats and jet skis during the summer. 
I kid you not, he would lend his nicest cars to some of the guys in the youth group to take their dates to on prom. And his saying was always this. He said this to me. This is a quote, David Simpson. It is said that he who has the most toys when they die wins. But I say, quote David Simpson, he who shares his toys the most wins. How true is that? All we already have, all we have is already God's. And let's not cling, cling on to our stuff. Let's store stuff in heaven. I love this. Luke 21, verse 1. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Their, their money was not in cash like ours. It was change made out of gold and silver and that kind of stuff. And so they have a big pot outside the temple. And when you dropped your chunk of change in, it would represent how awesome you were because of how much money you give. And everyone would go, whoa. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Blink, blink. And he said, everyone, turn and look. There, right there, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the rest of them. For they have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, she put in all she has to live live on. James is driving home this point to us. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with wise business decisions. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But our wealth should never become our idol. Money Get this, write this down. Money is a tool to be a blessing, never a means to appease our jealousy and selfish ambition that James has been talking about for the past three chapters. It is a tool to be a blessing. He who shares the most toys wins. But Pastor Dominic, you're saying that to have godly priorities, I might have to give up something. Maybe something big. Real life example. The number one reason that I have seen teenagers walk away from their faith in the last 14 years of youth ministry is so simple and so subtle. And yet it's a pattern that just won't stop. And it begins whenever they suddenly inherit responsibilities. Maybe they have to pay for their car insurance or pick up their phone bill every month. And they they can finally drive. Yeah, drive. I am the master of my ship. And so the first thing they do, they got to they gotta pay these bills. So they go out and they get, they get their job, their first job. Independent money I worked hard for, yes. And what they'll do is they'll figure out what their school hours are and their sports hours or drama are, et cetera, et cetera. And they will book every hour possible other that does not, or in all the empty time that's not filled by school or sports. And what will happen totally inadvertently is they don't realize that they pinch out they're gathering with other believers, youth group, church, et cetera, et cetera. They don't even realize it. And it's just like, oh, yeah, Dom, I, oh, yeah, I won't be able to make it this Wednesday. I've got work. Oh, yeah, you know. And then soon it's like two and six and eight. And soon it's been like three months. And it's like all of a sudden you watch their Instagram change. You watch their friend circles, the people that influence their lives begin to change. And you just watch their life drift right away. And it all begins with such a simple, totally subtle undercover good thing. But what happens and they don't even, they feel like I'm making money. I need to make as much as I can. And they will 
totally blindly begin to make money an idol. And it's something they will carry into their adulthood for the rest of their lives, unless God convicts them with a James chapter 5 kind of message. We'll pursue the almighty dollar because it just makes sense to. And James is going, stop. It's an idol. It breaks my heart to watch students who are on fire drift like that. Yeah, choosing Jesus may mean surrendering some things. It may mean being more picky about the job that you take. I must have, must have been passed up by like five or six jobs when I was in college because I was not I was like, these are the hours I will not work. These are my hours for the Lord. And jobs I was overqualified for, I didn't get. And then God gave me a great job. And then by the time I left that job, I was making more money than anybody else in any of the departments except for the manager. I didn't want that job. Because God honors us. He takes care of us. Yeah, you might have to give up the brand new uh, iPhone 17 Pro Max Infinity 3000 Plus so that you can make that missions trip. We may have to make sacrifices, but God's kingdom is worth it because where are we putting our treasure? I want to finish the bigger and better story with Richard. By the end of the night, after eight to ten houses of knocking on doors, Richard left the game with a pickup truck. He went from a dime to a Dodge. I want to give you this quote from C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. Our desires for stuff, it seems like, man, the world hungers and desires after stuff so badly. Our craving for for sex or money or power is so strong. This is what C.S. Lewis has to say. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are standing at the door and Jesus is going, will you let go of what's in your hand? Will you be willing to give up this idol? I have bigger and better for you. Are you willing to let go? Richard took that truck He drove down the street to the nearby church and he tossed them the keys because Richard's priorities were not something that he got at the doorway. His priorities went beyond material stuff. He believed that God had bigger and better than just an old pickup truck for his life. It wasn't hard for him to give up and sacrifice what he knew already belonged to God. I want to close with these tough questions. Like those wealthy people that James is chastising, are we willing to sacrifice our righteousness to pursue money? Do we really trust God to be our provider? Are we willing to be generous? Like I mentioned earlier, Jerusalem had a lot of poor churches, a lot of poverty, And so in Paul's journeys, Paul actually took a collection of money to send to the Jerusalem church to help them out. And as he is writing about this collection, he writes this in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Paul is writing to them about money. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also 
reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. Having so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So here's the challenge I want to send you home with. In prayer, I dare you to get before the Lord and recommit everything that you have to him. If you've given your heart to the Lord, he already owns it, but this is our self-recognition. Lord, here's the stuff in my room. Here's the stuff in my account. Here's the stuff in my pocket, in my wallet. Lord, it's yours. I give it to you. Resurrender what we have. And then I dare you to take it a step further and say, Lord, what portion or in what way can I use what I have for you this week? Do I have a friend on a mission trip that I could plant some funds into to help them? Is there a church? Is there someone hurting financially? Is there someone around me? Maybe the person in line behind me, I don't even know. The person at Chick-fil-A, maybe I can just spring to buy their lunch too. Lord, in what way can I use what you've given me? Can I surrender this back to you to be yours? Heavenly Father, ouch. Ooh, ouch. Lord, forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive me for the other day when I withheld the opportunity to love someone. I'm sorry. Open our eyes to the people around us. Let us stop missing those things that you're calling us to do. What is right that we avoid because we want to stay comfortable, because we want to keep what's in our hands? Give us discipline. Lord, more than that, give us love. Wrap your arms around us and show us who you're calling us to love through the sharing of our stuff. Stuff that is so empty and so temporary anyway. Lord, surrender to you our lives. Everyone in here who has called on you as their Lord, we surrender to you. And Lord, if there's, not, if there's anyone in here that hasn't given their life to you, Lord, I pray that you will lovingly just begin to pick at their heart. Begin to show them that you are so worth it, that what you have, this eternal joy and peace, walking in with your presence is so worth any sacrifice. And it's certainly worth the sacrifice of our life for you. Lord, I pray that they will find people to ask questions of. And Lord, that because of your word, there are future believers in this room they're going to call on you as their Lord in the coming days. Lord, equip us, strengthen us, empower us, fill your people, and let us walk in communion with you. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. Thank you for listening. Episodes are recorded every Wednesday at Elevate Student Ministry. All students, 7th through 12th grades, are welcome.